Man, second service. Y'all show up, all right? Much louder than the first service. I like that. I like that a lot. Well, we, we made the first step. I didn't trip up the stairs. So success, success number one. Um, hopefully there's more to come. But I think the first thing I want to say, I just want to say thank you. Um, since, you know, Chris announced last week that I get the opportunity to do this, it's been nothing but support and prayers and text messages from all of you. Um, just in the passing of hallways or seeing you in the grocery store, they all said, oh, hey, I heard you, you know, speaking. And, and they really encouraged me. And so I just want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart for encouraging me, for praying for me. I'm excited. I hope you're excited. Um, one of the questions I keep getting is, Nate, are you nervous? And let me answer that. Yes, I am nervous, most definitely. Um, but, in, but in order to calm some of those nerves, I thought I would share with you the fact that this isn't really my first time that I've had the privilege of talking about Jesus with you. Actually, this was my first time being able to talk with, with Jesus about you. Yeah. I figured showing kids, kids pictures is never going to fail, right? Like, that has to land. So that's me as a shepherd. That's my sister as a sheep. We got to be a part of the Trinity annual Christmas program. And, uh... Yeah, I just wanted to make sure that you all knew that this is not my first time I've been here before. So, we can, we can do this. I, I know we can. So, uh, when, when Chris first asked me to do this, I was filled with a lot of questions, with a lot of fears, with some doubts, um, and I didn't really know what to say, and so I just made sure to take a lot of time to sit and to pray and to think, and I was able to say yes. I was able to really hear from God as he was saying, Nate, this is a really good next step for you to take. So that was exciting. I was able to go back to Chris and say, I think I'm ready to do this. Like, let's, let's get after it. But then, all of a sudden, I was filled with a couple more fears and a couple more doubts and a couple more questions. And really, the biggest question that I had in my mind was, I don't really know what to say. I don't really know what I have to share. And for a while, you know, I kind of stewed on that for a little bit. But again, after more praying and after more thinking, God simply was telling me that, Nate, just don't reinvent the wheel. Just share our story. Share what I've been teaching you for your life, and then I'll do the rest. And so that's, that's bringing us here today, and I hope that's okay with you. Um, I'm excited. I hope you're excited. So let's do this. So in youth these days, you know, I got to gotta talk about youth because I'm a youth guy. So in youth these days, the high schoolers, they've been going through a series called Mine, and the conversation has been centered around making our faith our own. Really, making the hard next steps, having the hard conversations, you know, joining a small group, serving in, in any way, really making our faith our own. And for me, it's been so good because I get to relive the very moment that I made that certain decision for myself. I was at a youth camp, I was a junior in high school, and the message, just, the message had just finished, and we had quiet time, 15 minutes, just the whole camp. Find a spot, be silent, sit and pray. And the whole camp is silent. I'm sitting on this Adirondack chair. I'm overlooking this beautiful inlet. And among a lot of the things that I thought about and prayed about in that time, the one thing I thought most about was the fact that in that moment, I was more confident than ever that I wanted my life to be God's life. And I wanted my God to be my God. And I sat there and I said, God, I surrender my life to you. And so now every single week we get to talk in youth and it reminds me every single week of that very moment that I sat there and made that decision. 
And so following that moment in the Adirondack chair, I came back from camp. And you know when you come back from camp, you've got like 400 habits that you want to start. Like you've all of a sudden heard all these great things and you're like, I'm going to be the best person in the whole wide world. And so I came home. I'm so excited about this new decision that I've made. And really, I've grown up in church my whole life, and for a long time, people have just opened up the Bible for me and told me the stories. But after this decision, I was confident that I wanted to really open up the Bible and figure out the stories for myself. So I I sat down, I woke up, I made my cup of coffee, and I opened up the Bible and had a question that I feel like a lot of of us have. Where do I even start? I open up this book, there's an Old Testament, there's a New Testament. Some of it's like not chronological and some of it I don't really understand. And people have a lot of different opinions on where you start and how you start. And I was just really overwhelmed. I was really confused, especially as a junior in high school, not really knowing what to do. So I thought back to a conversation that I had a couple of weeks prior. This was a conversation I had with my small group of guys that we, we would hang out every single week. We would talk about three things. We call them the three G's. Talk about girls, talk about grades, we talk about God. And uh, we, we had covered the first two, and now we're talking about God. And one of my friends, Paul Babbitt, he said this. He said, guys, I've been reading Romans lately, and it's just like blowing my mind. It's full of all this, this great stuff, and I've never read it before, and it's my first time. And so I'm sitting there with my Bible open with all these questions thinking, like, that's a great answer. Here we go. Let's start in Romans. And I was excited, and so I said, why not? Well, here's the deal. If you've read Romans, you know it's written by Paul. And I think if I were to describe Paul as a person, I would describe him as someone who's all in, in everything he did. When he lived, if he thought something, he was all in on that thought. When he did something, he was all in on that action. And for a while, a part of his life, he was all in on something that wasn't super good. If you know a little bit more of his story, he was so all in on what he believed that he went around taking others' lives who didn't believe what he believed. But if you know the rest of his story, you know that change. You know that eventually he gave his life to God and became all in on that relationship. And that's the type of stuff that we get to read about in the Bible when Paul writes. But I think for now, I just want to describe Paul and what I, really what I knew about him when I was a junior in high school. He was just this uber smart dude who loved Jesus. And his smartness became so incredibly clear to me as a junior in high school. His writing style was so eloquent with sentences that I'm pretty sure are breaking every single grammar rule, with words that are flying over my head with the resemblance of an F-16 fighter jet. But the whole time I'm reading Romans, I'm just sucked in. I'm so sucked in the way Paul talks about life, the way he talks about other humans and human nature and faith. And Jesus, and I'm just flying through it because I really, I'm flying by the seat of my pants, trying to hang on to where he's going. But I'm so sucked in. I'm so excited to keep reading. And so I'm reading, and I'm reading, and I'm reading. And soon, I come to a part in Romans where I'm able to say, finally, like, thank you, Paul. This, this I get. This I understand. And for us this morning, that's where I want us to start. And I think it might be relatable to us as well. This is in Romans 7, halfway through verse 18. Paul says this. He says, For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. 
And as a junior in high school, there was like red flashing lights, like this is you. And I'm pretty sure I read this and said out loud, this is me. Especially as a junior in high school, it's really trying to figure some things out. Really trying to make some life decisions. When I read this, it was so apparently clear. And for me, I knew that in the back of my mind, I had all these desires and all this knowledge about what to do, about how to live life. And yet when I read this, it became incredibly clear to me that I have this inability to carry out those things, just like Paul talked about. If I could put it a little bit more simply, I would say this, and I think Paul would say this too, he would say, I have this thing in me, this thing that desires so much to do good, but I literally don't have the ability to do it. And I also had this thing in me that desires and knows what not to do. And yet, I, and yet I seem to keep doing those things. Here Paul is comparing desire and ability. And making the claim that he not only knows what is right and good, he has the desire to do those things, and yet he finds himself with the simple inability to carry those things out. But at the same time, when I first read this, I knew that Paul was talking about humanity as a whole. That at a soul level, if we're honest with ourselves, we have the knowledge and desire to be truthful in every situation, to be patient with loved ones, to forgive when we've been wronged, to apologize when we're the ones who wronged, to be the best wife or husband or friend or closest companion that we can be. But sometimes, and it's been my experience most of the time, by myself I don't have the ability to carry those things out. And I think if, we've been, if we're honest with ourselves, this feeling is or has been very real for all of us. And I've been reading a lot lately, you know, because I'm an adult now and I'm very sophisticated. <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> but I have been meeting Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, and I came across Lewis's thoughts on the very thing Paul talks about in Romans. Here Lewis calls it, he calls it the law of nature. And he says this, Next slide. And there it is. These, then, are the two points I wanted to make. First, that human beings all over the earth have this curious idea that they ought to behave in a certain way and cannot really get rid of it. And secondly, that they do not, in fact, behave in that way. They know the law of nature, they break it. These two facts are the foundation of all clear thinking about ourselves and the universe we live in. And I was reading that book and I immediately thought, Yeah, C.S. Lewis read Romans for sure. And at first when I read, when I was reading, his bluntness like slapped me right in the face. This kind of matter of fact mentality of like, yep, here it is. But really Lewis's implied message here and the key for all of us moving forward this morning is that we must be honest with ourselves. We must do the hard work to look in the mirror and face the truth. We must be honest with ourselves. And here's the deal. I just want to say this. If you're here this morning, please know that being honest here in this room is one of the safest places for you to be honest with yourselves. That's why we come here, to be honest with ourselves and with God. So don't miss out on that. And so now that we're all on the same page, we're taking this fresh look in the mirror at ourselves, I want us to go back to Paul in Romans because he's not even done on this topic. So buckle up. 
In Romans 7, at the end of at the end of the chapter, he starts saying this in verse 23. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me a captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? A wretched man, a war, a body of death. When I first read this, I just wanted to find Paul somewhere and like give him a huge bear hug and say, dude, like it's going to be okay. I promise you don't have to feel this hard about yourself. But we get the opportunity as, as readers of Paul to get this clear insight on one of the most brutal moments of honesty a human can have. And oftentimes it's scary to be honest around other people, but Paul has written it for all of us. This brutal moment of honesty of him recognizing this fact that, hey, I have this desire to do good. I don't have the ability to carry it out. I feel wretched. And I don't know about you, but I don't wake up every day in this mindset. I wake up every day thinking about the things I have to get done or the things I want to get done. I don't wake up every day thinking I have a war going on inside of me. That's not my go-to. But remember that this moment of total honesty that Paul is going through And in this moment of brutal honesty, one word has always stuck out to me. Every time I read it, it's always stuck out to me, and it's this. It's captive. Captive. When I think of the word captive, I think of a person who isn't able to escape against his or her will. Someone who can't go anywhere. Who is confused and confined. Being a captive isn't something I would wish on anybody. But here, Paul seems very sure... He seems so sure that this war that's going on inside of him is making him a captive. And when I first read this years ago, this didn't make any sense to me because I had grown up in church all the time hearing that Paul is credited with writing half the New Testament, is credited with a lot of being the catalyst for the early church, with changing a bunch of people's lives. This didn't make any sense to me. Paul, a man who said things like this, Indeed, I count it all as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. This guy is willing to count everything in his life as nothing just for the sake of knowing God. So this mindset of being a captive is just not what you would expect from a guy like Paul. And for me, that's where Romans 7.23 becomes so provocative. Because if if we're honest with ourselves... Paul isn't just describing himself. He's describing me, and he's describing you, and he's describing the people outside of these walls. He's making the claim that we all have this natural bend to do things we know we shouldn't do and to not do the things we know we should do. This war that Paul describes for himself, it's in all of us. And you know this to be true. I mean, it, it, it reared its ugly head on Thanksgiving when you were sitting at the table and all the food was gone, but there was that, you know, basket of rolls in the middle. And there was one on the bottom that was still pretty hot and maybe it had some steam coming up. And your body said, come on, no, please don't. I can't have another roll. And you have all this knowledge that like, no, the roll is so bad for me right now. And yet in this moment where you see the steam and the butter is maybe right there and you got a knife in hand, all of a sudden you do not have the ability to carry out what your body knows is bad for you. And you eat that roll with an intensity that is a little bit shameful. <laughs> or when, maybe when you're a little kid and your parents give you those instructions, hey, just 
don't peek at your Christmas presents, please. And maybe it's the night before, and all of a sudden you're thinking, like, maybe it's an Xbox. Oh my gosh, what's if, what if it's an Xbox? I just want to know, I just want to know. And so you walk upstairs, and you're so curious, and you know, and you have this desire not to look. Because you know you want to respect your parents and love your parents. But on the other side, there's this, curi- this is curiosity that says, you don't have the ability to overcome that right now. And so you walk upstairs, and maybe there's a piece of tape that you know, like, oh, it's halfway off, I can take that off. And you take it off, you peek inside, and you're, oh, Lord. And then you get ready, and then you get your surprise face ready, and you move on. Or maybe a little bit more serious... When he knows that every woman deserves to be treated with respect and honor, and dignity. But in that moment, something tells him that this will feel good, and this will satisfy me. Or as the businesswoman who knows to have the value of integrity and be an honorable employee. But over here, there's something telling her that All she has to do is stab a couple backs, cut a couple corners, maybe gossip, and all those things that the world says are good, status, money, productiveness. They override that knowledge of what not to do. And all of a sudden, a poor decision follows. Even as a Jesus follower, you know this to be true. Especially for me specifically, I know that reading my Bible and prayer will put me in the presence of the God And yet I have an iPhone in my pocket and Netflix on my TV that immediately tell me this is more fun than this. Or all of a sudden I've overscheduled my, I've overbusied my schedule to the fact where there's not even time for a relationship with Jesus anymore. But the world tells me that success and productiveness, those are things to be valued of, of the highest. And so all of a sudden this over here doesn't get the attention that it deserves, that it needs. Or if you just want to pursue a simple relationship with Jesus, the way you know you want to, an all-out type of relationship with Jesus. But there's sometimes a reputation about Jesus followers and Christians that the world talks about that sometimes is a hard pill to swallow. And you think it's just easier to go with the flow. This war that Paul is talking about, it takes place in us every single day. Jesus follower or non-Jesus follower, Christian or non-Christian, if we're really honest with ourselves, this war is real. On the one side, there's this knowledge and desire in all of us to do the right thing, and yet we don't have the ability to carry it out. And whether you're here today and you feel like this war has you captive where you sit, or you're here today and you can just point to a time in your life where you know this to be true, We're just a bunch of captives, just like Paul. We all know it's there. And believe me, you don't have to tell me that this realization isn't fun to make. I don't like making it either. And the world's going to tell you, you don't even have to make it. Because let me throw you this really successful job, and this team that you can sink yourself into, and this hobby that you can sink yourself into, and this iPhone that's constantly buzzing in your pocket. And while in and of themselves, those things aren't bad. They're not bad things. But when they become distractions, we become numb to this other reality that Paul is trying to talk about. 
We become numb and we forget that while these things are good, there's this thing nagging us and this truth over here, this desire versus our ability. But when we remove all that stuff, when we look at ourselves in the mirror, we can be honest with ourselves and we can say that this war is undeniable. And for me, I'll be honest, it can be easy to feel like you have a leg up on this war, especially if you've been following Jesus for a long time. I haven't even been following Jesus for, for that long, but what I know is that sometimes I can feel like I've got the upper hand in this battle, in this war. And it's also been my experience to know that that's my most, most vulnerable state. That's my most vulnerable state for a counterattack, to when my knowledge becomes too high versus my ability. But before we lose hope on Paul or ourselves or humanity, I just, I just want us to turn the page real quick. And not even just figuratively turn the page, I just want us to literally turn the page in our Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Notice that we're not even a page away in our Bibles. Not even a page away from Paul's really Debbie Downer description of himself. But the tone with which he's writing now is extremely different. Paul says this in verse 37. He starts... No, in all these things we are more than conquerors. In all these things we are more than conquerors. In my Bible, this declaration, this battle cry comes not even a full page away from Paul's previous description of himself. But here he is, describing himself as a conqueror, implying that he has overcome this war that wages within him with a tone of triumph, of someone who isn't racked by fear or doubt or fatigue or confusion or hopelessness. See, a conqueror is someone who knew exactly what his mission was, who knew the strategy to overcome the enemy, and because of that won the battle. And this declaration, this incredible change in outlook, it must beg the question, how does Paul get from such a harsh description of himself to one of triumph? How does Paul get from captive to conqueror? What changed in Paul's mind so drastically so that instead of looking in the mirror and seeing someone who is wretched, he now sees someone with victory, with joy, with confidence, with life. So just what changed? Well, the short answer is found in the middle of the verse we just read. And Paul says this, No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. See, it's these things that somehow changed his perspective. And so for the rest of the morning, I just want to talk about a couple of the things that Paul is alluding to. See, what we're reading now is the end of chapter 8, but there's a whole middle of chapter 8 that's full of what Paul's pointing to here. And if it's okay, I just want to talk about a couple of those things for the, for the moment. So, let's go back to the end of chapter 7. And remember that Paul has, in a matter of three sentences, described himself as a captive, a, a wretched man, and has questioned if there is anyone who will save him from his own body. And again, I just would like to give him a hug and say, hey man, like, it's going to be Okay. And remember that at this point, he is fighting a war, one that is against this law of sin. This thing that is really in all of us where we have the desire to do the right thing, but not always the ability. But at the beginning of chapter 8, his tone starts to change. 
Chapter 8, verse 1, Paul says this. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free. In Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Or put another way, because of what Jesus did, every person who makes the simple choice of believing in him as their Savior, you've been set free. You're no longer a captive. You've been set free. And not only have you been set free, you've been given life. The spirit of life has set you free. So not only are you free, but you have life. And what are the two things that a captive is running short on? Freedom and life. Freedom and life. You see, Paul is saying this. Anyone who hasn't made that choice to trust Jesus, to believe in Jesus and who he is and what he says, you're still a captive. And what kind of life does a captive have? But he is doing his very best to encourage all of us that for those of us who put our trust in Jesus, true life, abundant life, Jesus talks about, will be right there. So if you're taking notes this morning, the first of these things is this. It's that we have freedom in Jesus. And it's simply that. And we must not forget it. But Paul doesn't stop there. He's kind of on a roll now. And I imagine he's writing with a little bit more oomph. Maybe looking a little bit crazed as he's writing. And he's writing, and he's writing this in verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And when I was preparing, this verse tripped me up all the time because I just want to talk about it the whole time. This verse means so much to me. And if you were to talk to any of the students and youth right now, they would probably kindly say that I get a little bit excited when I talk about this thing. Because for me, when I lived in high school, this is exactly what I needed to hear. You see, when I was in high school, and I think a lot of us, it's so easy for us to find our identity in something different. For me, it was sports. For other people, it's something different. But here, Paul is saying, you have a new identity. You're a child of God. When you make the choice to accept the freedom of Jesus, you become a child of God. When you're a captive, you're alone. You go to bed in a cell, you wake up in a cell. The concept of family or mother or father, they become very lost on you. And sadly, in the world we live in, the family dynamic is disintegrating faster than ever. The 50-50 stat gets thrown around all the time. The 50% of marriages end in divorce. That's not even true anymore. The, the, the number is going down. There's less divorces. But it's only because my generation has grown up watching the family dynamic disintegrate over and over again that they've just made the choice that they're not even going to get married anymore. And that just breaks my heart. But here, Paul is describing a much different family dynamic. A family dynamic where the father has perfect love for the children. A family dynamic where the father has perfect patience for the child. 
A family dynamic where the father has unconditional love despite all of the child's mistakes. A description that is far from the reality that we live in today. In youth, we recognize that one of the biggest things students are wrestling with is identity. This who am I question. And whenever I get the chance, I remind them very quickly, you are a child of God first. You can figure out what your hobbies and interests are later, but don't forget this one. You must not forget this one. You are a child of God. So the second of these things is this. We have identity in God. So we have freedom in Jesus and what he's done. We have identity in God in the simple fact that he is the perfect father. And I imagine a little bit faster now, Paul writes this in verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And when I read this, I just think, I recognize that Paul is comparing two different realities. One of the realities is the one that we live in every single day. A world full of brokenness. And if you don't believe me, just open up the news app every single day. You get, a, you get a nice news article once a week, maybe. The rest is full of heartbreak and tragedy. This is one reality. But the other reality that Paul's talking about here, this future that he's talking about, is something that Jesus often talked about when he said the kingdom of God. This future reality where everything that's broken over here is once fixed is once saved, is once brought back to how it was originally designed to be, the kingdom of God. His people saved, living in right relationship with the creator of the world. Paul isn't naive. He's not saying if you choose to follow Jesus, it's going to be rainbows. But what he is saying is that in the middle, in the midst of a broken world, Because of what Jesus has done, because we have identity in God, therefore we have hope in a future. And so the third of these things is this, is that we have hope in the future. We have hope in the future. And finally in verse 26, he says, Likewise the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. When you're a captive, especially if you've been in that cell for a long time, especially if you've been wrestling with that war, your hope of someone helping you, of having a key to unlock that door, to then open it and say, here you go, that dwindles very, very quickly. And really, this is Paul's Paul's fourth and final point. And it points back to a conversation Jesus had with his disciples when Jesus was living, and when his, when his disciples were, feel, were filled with fear and doubt and fatigue and confusion, and Jesus said, it's actually better for me to go so that I can send you my helper, my spirit, what Paul talks about here, so that when you are trying to live as a conqueror, you have help. You have help. Because here's the deal, a conqueror just can't overcome this desirability tension on his own. We need help. 
So the fourth of these things is this, is that we have help for today. We have freedom in Jesus. We have identity in God calling us his children. We have hope for the future in the midst of a world that is broken. And we have help for today. Because I don't know about you, I need help. I need a lot of it. And honestly, for those who have grown up in church, these things are so foundational that if we're not careful, they're going to become white noise. If we're, not going to be, if we're not careful, they're going to stop changing our lives like they changed Paul's. How does a man get from calling himself wretched to get, from calling, to, get to calling himself a conqueror? That doesn't just happen by accident. And if we're not careful, we're not going to be able to get from here to there if we don't let these things into our hearts. You see, these things change Paul's life. And not just in the sense of, okay, well, I'll start going to church a little bit more, I guess. Or, yeah, I should probably be more generous. Or, yeah, I'll forgive one more person. No, these things unlocked a brand new way of living. Unlocked a brand new way of getting up out of bed every single day, walking out that door, and interacting with the outside world. A brand new mindset. To the point that it became his default to be generous. It became his default to be with other people who love Jesus, praising God. It became his default to be on his knees in prayer and to treat others the way they deserve to be treated. These things changed Paul's life, and they continue to change his life over and over and over again. And with all that said, I just want to read to you Paul's just declaration at the end of chapter 8. I didn't read it all at the beginning, but I want to read it all to you now. And I just want you to imagine Paul writing this with a weight that's off his shoulders that you couldn't even imagine. Writing so freely, with so much confidence. Paul says this, verse 31, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son up, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God through Christ Jesus. 
And the first time I read this passage when I was a junior in high school, I just, I just sat there and I cried. Because I needed to hear that I could be a conqueror. And you see what Paul recognized so clearly, it was crystal clear to him in this moment, is that God has life on offer for you and for me. Life on offer. That instead of living as a captive, tormented by the war going on inside of us all, we all have the opportunity to live as a conqueror, and not in the sense that nothing will ever go wrong, but in the middle of living in a broken world as a conqueror. This is Paul on his knees, begging for us to see these things, to know these things, to know the freedom we have in Jesus, to recognize our identity as a child of God, to hope in the future, and to ask for help for today. But how many of us can honestly say that this is how we get to live every single day of our lives? I can't answer that question for you, but I can answer it for me, and I can just say that even though this is my favorite passage in the whole Bible, oftentimes I don't get the privilege of having my life looking like this every single day. I'm so often confronted with the fact that life as a conqueror that Paul describes is just not the life that I live. But so badly, this is what I want. I recognize that God has life on offer for me. And so in that moment as a junior, and and as often as I can now, I tell God, God, I want the life you have on offer for me. But then all of a sudden, doubt creeps into my mind. And I start asking the question, how? How do I do this, Paul? How do I keep these things as my focus in the midst of a barrage of attacks that the world is throwing at me? I mean, I've got this iPhone in my pocket, and it keeps ringing. And I've got this sports team that I dearly, dearly love. And I've got this hobby that, that people tell me, you have, have, put, have made it my interest, God. What am I supposed to do with all of these things? How am I supposed to do it? And on top of all of that, I have Netflix. It's hard. <laughs> If I know anything, I know that the war Paul was talking about that held him captive is raging more than it ever has. And if I'm not careful, my life is going to start looking more like a captive than the life of a conqueror. One where I'm not free, where I don't know my identity, where hope is an ideal and help feels far away. But Paul doesn't leave us hanging this morning. And that's good. Because in Philippians 4, I think he captures what we all need to think about this week. He says this, chapter 4, verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace 
will be with you. You see, the God of peace has life on offer, true and abundant life that Jesus talked about. And my simple encouragement for all of us this morning is to do whatever we can relentlessly every single day to think about these things. Freedom in Jesus, identity in God, hope for the future, and help for today. Do whatever you can. I think about it this way. When you wake up in the morning, maybe you have your quiet time, write about these things, pray about these things, think about these things, say thank you for these things. And make sure to put them in an imaginary backpack. Put them all in there. And then put that backpack on your back and walk out that door. Walk out that door as a conqueror. And then all of a sudden, when you're tempted to do the wrong thing and you fail, here's what you do. You open up that backpack and you take out freedom in Jesus. And you think about the fact that regardless of your mistakes, you're free in Jesus. And then maybe... You're off track a little bit and you start finding your identity in your success or how well you play a sport or, or anything like that. And all of a sudden, you need to open up that backpack and take out the fact that you're a child of God. And then you can put it back. And then all of a sudden, someone really hurts you. Someone really wrongs you. All of a sudden, you need to take out that backpack and you've got to take out help for today. You've got to take out help to forgive, help just to be okay. And then all of a sudden, when, maybe when you open up that news app, close it really, really fast. Put that phone in your pocket. Open up that backpack and say, I've got hope in the future. You see, these things unlock the potential for all of us to live as conquerors. And if we're not careful, we will miss out. And really all we're missing out on is the life that God has for you and for me. He's already done the work. He's already saved us. He's died and rose again. But what he is offering here is the existence that we are all living right now, here and now, today and tomorrow and next week, and saying, I have a life and it's on offer for you. But you just have to remember and think about these things. Please don't reinvent the wheel. Please remember that you have freedom in Jesus. Please remember that I call you my child. Please remember that you can have hope in what I have planned for you. And please, don't forget that I am there to help you through it all. Let all of these things infiltrate every single thing you do and the God of peace will be with you. Let me pray. God, thank you. Thank you for the freedom we have in Jesus, for the identity we have in God, for the hope that we have in the future and the help that we have for today. God, may those things change our lives every single minute, every single second of every single day. And may we take those things and tell the world about them as conquerors and not as captives. Father, give us the strength and the guidance to live into the life that you have on offer for all of us. Father, we love you. We thank you for your son, Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.
Thank you.